Hi everybody, this is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors. Biotics Research, for four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health by providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources. Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. For the past two decades, TA Sciences has been dedicated to exclusively creating research-based, clinically tested wellness products that help address telomere shortening through the science of telomerase activation. As you know, anti-aging has been a huge focus of my research, and I am thrilled to have TA Sciences as a sponsor of New Frontiers. Learn about their products, their research, their outlook on anti-aging at tasciences.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And of course, today is no exception. I am so excited to be talking to Dr. Morgan Levine. I'm fangirling in a pretty big way today. Let me tell you about her and we'll jump right in. And I know that you're going to be as thrilled about this conversation uh, as I am. So Morgan Levine is an assistant professor of pathology at Yale University School of Medicine, and she's author of the book, True Age, Cutting Edge Research to Help Turn Back the Clock. Her research focuses on the science of biological aging, specifically using bioinformatics to quantify the aging process and test how lifestyle and pharmaceutical interventions alter the rate of aging. Uh, we're going to dive into this big time. As a leading voice in the field of aging and longevity science, she has been featured in media outlets such as CNN, The Guardian, Time, Newsweek, BBC, and many, many more. Uh, she was just on a docu-series by Netflix, uh, which was released in 2020. I want to just add to this bio that... Um, that Morgan really sits at the epicenter, no pun intended, you know, of epigenetics and biological aging. Like she's smack in the middle of figuring out how we measure bioaging and what kind of uh, interventions will influence biological aging. In fact, I don't know, maybe perhaps other than Steve Horvath, who, you know, really developed the first clock that, that has been widely used. I don't know if anybody else is, is, is in the middle of this world uh, as much as Morgan is. So uh, Dr. Levine, welcome to New Frontiers. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Um, let me actually, let's just touch a little bit on your own journey. Your journey is interesting. It sort of, it reminds me a little bit in a very different way of my own, like coming to study aging. Can you just give us a a little bit of a background on how you got into this? Yeah, I mean, as far back as I remember, I've been very interested in aging. And I think it probably has to do 
uh, with the fact that my father was actually quite a bit older than the average father when I was born. So he was in his mid fifties. And I was always just very concerned about the aging process. It's something I could actually see in my dad. Um, whereas I think a lot of kids aren't really contemplating their parents growing old or, or potentially losing them. Um, it was something that kind of consumed me. And then at some point I kind of got exposure to this whole field of aging and the realization that it's not something fully out of our control and actually the biological aging process is something potentially malleable that if we can scientifically figure out how to do that, we could potentially kind of extend our, our what we call health span and lifespan. Right. Yeah. So for, I became a mom at 50. <laughs> and so, you know, oh, wow. similar. Yeah. Yeah. That's my Isabella. You can see on that zoom. That's my daughter. And um, so similarly, but from the other, the other side of the equation, I feel a really intense to commitment to, you know, living the best life that I can and hopefully favorably influence that and support others to uh, live their best lives. Uh, so chronological age and, and, and biological age, um, just speak to the difference and then we'll dive in. Yeah, so I think whenever we think of aging or our age, we always think of chronological age, which as everyone knows, is just measured in units of time since you were born. So years, you can measure it in days, however you want, what unit you wanna do. Um, and we usually associate our age with an increased risk of developing diseases or an increased risk of dying, but it's actually not the chronological time itself. It's not as if we're rolling a dice every year and just the probability is increasing. But what we think is happening is that our bodies are undergoing these very profound changes over our life course. Um, and it's that process that, that is actually driving all of the things that we associate negatively with aging. And this is kind of what we consider your biological age. So not everyone kind of accumulates these changes at the same rate. So someone who's lived 50 years could look very different than another person who's lived 50 years. So this is the idea of, can we actually measure the degree of change a body has undergone? And we, we like to think of that as the biological age of a person. So even though when we look at aging as being the biggest risk factor, and you point out in your book, you know, sort of the, the mind-boggling statistic that it's that smoking isn't the biggest risk factor for lung cancer. In fact, age is. It isn't, again, the chronological age, even though that's how the data are always have always been presented. It's in fact the rate of aging. Yeah, because just this chronological time is very correlated with these biological changes and they're very, and chronological time is easy to measure. So it's always been kind of this easy proxy, but it, yeah, it's actually all of these biological changes, which are not happening at a constant rate like chronological aging is. So I, you know, I don't know if you happen to notice there was a, you probably did, there was a study published maybe in this past week, um, showing that American life expectancy has gotten another hit. And of course we can point our fingers at COVID, but it looks like we're aging faster biologically in this country than elsewhere. Yeah, and I think it, it also probably has to do with different sections of the 
country. I, I don't know exactly that study, I, but I do remember a few years ago there were studies and it was specifically, I think, showing white women seem to be losing the most in terms of life expectancy. Um, and I think at that time, I they were saying it probably had something to do with obesity epidemic. But yeah, it's it's this idea that it's malleable and both in a, the way we'd want it to be, right? Can we use slow biological aging? But there's also factors in our environment that can accelerate our biological aging. Um, and then the question is kind of how many of those are, are things that we actually have some control over or can do something about? I think, you know, the work that you guys are doing the, uh, in developing these biological age clocks has just changed the conversation on this wildly, just extraordinarily. It feels like we're sitting in, you know, at the, 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 the beginning of just revamping uh, our scientific approach to, and our medical, I mean, this will influence us in clinical practice as well, you know, how we think about the chronic diseases of aging, um, because we're able to more accurately measure biological age. And if it being the biggest risk factor for all of these chronic diseases, if, if we can reverse it, or if we can slow it down, uh, we should by extension, be reducing risk for all of these diseases. So can you speak to measuring biological age and uh, maybe a little bit of the history and the evolution of that? It's so, so, so interesting. And where we sit today, I know we're into second and perhaps even third generation, you know, biological age clocks, you know, how we measure it and, you know, where we are right now. Yeah, so the idea to measure it's actually been around for decades. I think some of the first people who said we should try to measure this were, um, I think, either in the, the 80s or even earlier. Um, but the problem was that we didn't have the, the tools and resources that would actually enable this. So there's so much that changes within our bodies as we age. And we're finally at a place where the science where we can actually measure millions of different variables um, from just a small sample of cells and you know, let alone an entire uh, human being. And we also have kind of the computing power now that can help us make sense of that data. So we, we're, we're in this kind of data boom with, coupled with kind of uh, increasing uh, computing power where we can actually take all that and make informative measures. So, some of the early measures uh, from a few decades ago were, were pretty simple and they just kind of looked at functional impairments or even uh, just the number of chronic diseases a person has. So you can almost take a self-assessment test here. So it's like, how many chronic diseases do you have? Do you have trouble doing this or that? I mean, you can kind of add that up and get a, a general idea. We usually call this like a frailty index or deficit accumulation index. Um, and the hard thing about that is those are usually just manifestations of aging that we can see or feel in our, our bodies. And it's hard if you're a little bit younger because these things haven't manifested yet. So there's no idea right. to really know where you, where you kind of stand, but that's where all this um, new either molecular and cellular data comes along where either you can measure kind of physiological parameters um, or what, what you alluded to with epigenetic clocks is we can measure um, what's called DNA methylation. And we do this across 
almost a million sites in the genome. So what this is, is it's not measuring whether you have an A, C, G, or T. So it has nothing to do with the sequence, but it's a chemical tag that gets added to these CPG sites. That's where you have a C next to a G. And the pattern of these across your genome changes quite dramatically with age. Um, so we can actually measure it at all these different sites, look at the pattern and say, you have a pattern that is indicative of someone with this chronological age, or now with these second generation clocks, what we're doing is you have a pattern that's indicative of someone with this mortality risk, which is equivalent to you know the average 60-year-old or 70-year-old or whatever it may be. So, yeah, so rather than identifying, okay, this individual is, is frail using the frailty index, which I know I think it's still being used today and does have a place, mm -hmm. uh, we can actually get in there and look at the aging journey epigenetically and see, you know, really fairly precisely whether somebody's moving too fast uh, or too slow or not, well, not too slow or slowly. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's a too slow at this point. Um, yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> all right, so that's, it's really exciting. And can you just speak to, there's a lot of clocks out there these days, uh, vetting good clocks. Um, any, any tips for, but there's a lot of clinicians listening to this, but there's also, uh, you know, lay people listening. Uh, so any tips for those folks wanting to measure biological age? Yeah, so as you said, there are tons of clocks. So, you know, now because it's getting easier and easier to develop these, a lot of different groups are doing that. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing that we see is that the clocks don't all give you the same answer. So what your biological age might be projected to be is gonna be different depending on the clocks. So I, I have a few criteria for what I would look for in a good biomarker of aging. So probably the most obvious is that it's something that should correlate with age. It should change as a function of age. Um, that's pretty easy to make a clock that does that. And that's what a lot of these first generation, so the, the famous Horvath clock did is, there was a measure that really strongly correlated with someone's chronological age. Um, but to me, the more important criteria than that is that the discordance between your predicted biological age and your, and your uh, chronological age should have biological meaning. And, and what, I, what I mean by that is we, we assess what we call the construct validity. So there's no way to say, are we accurately measuring biological age? Because we can't observe it. We have no ground truth to say, oh, how well did we actually do in our prediction? So we have to use kind of other surrogates that we think biological age should be able to predict. So we would say, among people the exact same chronological age, so let's say 60 years old, mm -hmm. are those with a higher biological age more at risk of dying in the next 20 years or more at risk of developing a given chronic disease? Or do we see that they um, accumulate more kind of physical or cognitive uh, deficits over time? And so there are some of these epigenetic clocks are really good at capturing that, but it's not all of them across the board. And then finally, the last criteria that I think is really important and not actually given enough attention is the idea of reliability. So if I were to measure the same clock twice, almost even in the same sample or you know day to day, how, how much variability am I gonna get? Am I gonna get the same answer? And unfortunately, what we've actually found is a lot of the existing 
epigenetic clocks are actually fairly noisy. You can get differences of five to sometimes even 10 years from the exact same sample run in the same batch. Um, so we've actually been working and recently developed new statistical methods that actually remove all of that, not all of it, but the majority of that technical noise. So now you almost always get at least the exact same age, if not, you know, maybe one year difference. So I think it's hard for people to evaluate these, but I would say look at the literature and if a clock's shown to have good, what I would call construct validity, means it can predict outcomes and good reliability, which means it's not noisy. Those are probably the, the main criteria I would use. You published um, recently a, a calculation. Is that, 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 that can be sort of layered on. I'm not a biostatistician, mm -hmm. so I don't know if I'm going to use correct language here, but you can, this calculation can be uh, applied to some of the well-published clocks, like your phenoage clock or mm -hmm. Horvath's clock or the Grim, the Grim Age, I think. So the big, the popular first, second generation clocks. This, is this what you're referring to, adding this calculation on to remove some of the noise? Yeah, so we, um, when we discovered this, this noise issue, we first went back and I retrained uh, PhenoAge, which was a clock I helped develop, because um, actually that was one of the more noisier clocks of all of them. And then we decided, well, let's do this for all of them because you know we shouldn't just make PhenoAge more reliable. We should let people use all the other ones too. So we, as you said, we did this for the original Horvath clock, and then there's a Horvath skin and blood clock, Grimage, Taylor Lane's clock and Hannum, which is one of the first blood clocks. Um, so yeah, if you have the data, uh, the epigenetic data, this is just an additional um, computational or statistical step that you kind of insert before you, you output your final uh, score. But it gives you almost the same answer, except it, it removes the no any noise or most right. noise. Okay, okay. Um, so I would just say to folks listening, because this is you know, this is a little bit dense. We'll try to pull some of these points together in our show notes. Um, but I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, Morgan, that we want clocks that are that have been published on in the literature, so they've been used. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, they've been they've they've been studied and published. Um, their algorithms, I guess, would therefore be available to other scientists to kind of kick the tires mm -hmm. of them, and then. Um, this, you know, the laboratory that we might order a test from is, is actually has access to your calculations, which are freely available, I believe, and they're applying them. So we could mm -hmm. maybe use that criteria and just ask the given lab if, if they're doing these things or offering this. Would that be reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think some, uh, there are definitely companies offering this. Um, I only know of one company, uh, that is actually using this new statistical method, but it doesn't mean others won't adopt this since this just came out recently. But yeah, I, I totally agree. Those are the main criteria. Okay. Okay. And that's perhaps a little bit uh, more straightforward. Um, but I do, I have confronted the fact there's a lot of proprietary clocks out there now, and I don't, I'm not entirely sure what to do with them. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Uh, so, um, Interesting. Well, I want to actually, so I want to talk about some of the interventions. We have to make sure we get there and get to your thoughts on slowing the biological age journey and, and, and what, your, what your thoughts are. Uh, but before we do, I want to talk about um, 
you know, DNA methylation and, and epigenetic changes in the aging journey as not just being surrogate markers of aging, but perhaps the driver. So when we get these epigenetic clocks, and I know you're working on this, actually, I know you, you published recently on this. When we get these clocks, uh, it's not just a suggestion or a shadow that we're either aging well or we're aging rapidly, but, but what's happening in the, these, the, you know, with regard to turning genes on and off, which, which you know, DNA methylation is intimately involved in, um, is driving the aging journey. And you talk about, I think, the hallmarks of aging that, you know, you go in your book, you go into some detail, you know, with the breakdown of the body and what's happening, you know, grossly and at the cellular and molecular levels. Um, but upstream, perhaps a root cause here, uh, and I think research out of Sinclair's lab and elsewhere, uh, where they reverse aging in animal models, I mean, it suggests that the aging journey really might start with these changes to the DNA methylome. Yeah, I think this is the major kind of unanswered question in aging research is, you know, is there a root cause to aging? Um, and also when it comes to these clocks, whether the methylation changes we're capturing, whether they're causal or they're just a good proxy for what's going on. Um, to me, I, the reason I feel like they probably have a more important role than just being uh, an output measure is I like to think of the epigenome as almost the operating system of a cell. Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. Hey there, listeners. It's your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald. I have a question for you. How much time do you spend ordering functional lab tests for your patients? I bet it's a lot. Ordering from multiple lab companies for hundreds of patients can quickly turn into hours of admin time. But there's a new way to order lab tests I'm excited to share with you. Rupa Health is a tool that lets you order from over 30 specialty labs in a single portal. You can order all the tests you normally do from companies like Dutch, Vibrant, Genova, and Great Plains, and so many more. Imagine you're ordering a hormone panel for a patient that includes tests from three different labs. You have to log onto three different websites, place separate orders, come back weeks later to check on tracking numbers, download results, et cetera, et cetera. Rupa eliminates all of that by having all ordering, tracking results in a single place, and they also handle invoicing, uh, tracking shipments, automated follow-ups, personalized instructions for completing tests, and much more. The best part about Rupa is that it is free for you. Go to rupahealth.com, that's R-U-P-A health.com, and join a live demo or sign up to see how it works. Now let's get back to today's show. So essentially all the cells in your body have the same DNA, aside from you know, a few somatic mutations that arise, but what creates the diversity of all these cell types throughout your body and gives cells their, their state and their their phenotypes and their traits and their ability to respond to stress and how fast they turn over is the epigenome. So that is really dictating the differences between all the cells in your body. Um, and, and as you, you said, and as we've been talking about, unfortunately, the epigenome changes dramatically with aging. And so one question is, is whether those changes are actually creating 
maladaptive cells or, or what we might think of as less healthy or less resilient cells. And that's kind of underlining everything we see in terms of tissue um, kind of dysregulation and disease manifestation with aging. Um, and the other, you know, really critical uh, evidence that you alluded to was this idea that if you can actually, you know, it's, it's slightly an indirect targeting of the methylome, but people do the cellular reprogramming using what are called the Yamanaka factors, where you can actually, we think through epigenetic changes, convert even very old, even cells from very old individuals back into what looks like an embryonic stem cell state. And, you know, is slightly, you can slightly differentiate them, but they, they behave like embryonic stem cells for the most part. Um, and the exciting thing is you can even take an old cell and convert it back into kind of a younger version of that same cell type. And I think that's where the field's really excited. And this seems to be acting through changes in the epigenome, which is a slightly more evidence that, you know, epigenetic modifications might be somewhat central to the aging process. Although I, I, I don't presume that they're the only thing going wrong with aging. Right, right. So, um, so we've got a, we've got a useful pattern that we're able to uncover with these, you know, cocktails of Yamanaka factors, either in animals or in cells. I mean, it. And then if we if we put that next to the very the radically different rates of aging in you know in other mammals. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, well, and actually, let's throw in there the mammalian clock. That yep. you know that's that Steve Horvath and many others worked on recently. It's it it, it seems that there's a, there's an element of programming. Mm -hmm. can, can you speak to that? Yeah, um, I mean, I do think a lot of the epigenetic changes that we see, people talk about them as just errors, or you know, the epigenome didn't copy over correctly, which some of it might yeah. be, but I think a lot of it is kind of a program hypothetically gone wrong or that just wasn't set up to promote, you know, extreme longevity. Um, I don't think it's, it's a program that's forcing aging because I, I don't think aging is something that needs to be, you can just do nothing and, and a system will age. Right. Um, but yeah, it does seem to be really interesting. And the thing that actually got me so interested in epigenetics and methylation from the get-go is how universal this seems to be. So it's yes. epigenetic clocks are the only clocks that you can use the same exact one and apply it to an, almost any tissue type. And now from Steve Horvath's work, it seems like you could use the same clock across, you know, hundreds of mammalian species. And there's something universal about this. And it does track with individuals' rates of aging, differences in lifespan across species, differences in tissue aging, um, that I think it will be a really exciting thing to figure out what this kind of concept is actually, or phenomenon is actually capturing. Yeah. Like, you know, you talk about Greenland sharks. I mean, they don't hit sexual maturation. I think you said until 150 years old. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, I mean, the diversity and aging in, in the animal kingdom is amazing. And there are people doing really exciting kind of comparative studies in aging. And they're built from the same ingredients. Right? Yeah, I mean, exactly. I don't know if, 
you know, they're built from the same ingredients. I, I, it's, as you pointed out in the book, you know, mice share 80, 85% of, you know, protein coding genes with us, you know, and yet we live um, orders of magnitude, I guess, longer than them. Um, yeah, it's just that a different arrangement of the system gives you a totally different kind of lifespan and organism. And it's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah, we're all built from essentially the same building blocks. It's amazing. Yeah. And so I want to talk. So, so there are some people who are probably looking at it through this lens and saying we can go in there. Well, well, Josh Middeldorf wrote a book called Cracking the Aging Code. And I know there's other people who speak about, you know, immortality. I mean, that's kind of a concept that's mm -hmm. rather radically sort of jaw dropping, I guess, me coming from functional medicine and, and, and thinking, you know, and, and, and paying attention to some of the scientists speaking about this. And it's, it's pretty wild that, you mm -hmm. know, there's this expectation that, that this will be cracked and, and immortality is perhaps, you know, not far around the corner. Anything to say on that? Um, I mean, I would say I'm probably one of the more pessimistic people in the aging <laughs> field um, where I, I, don't think it's going to be as simple as some people think. And I don't, I would say if I was a betting person, I'd probably say we're never going to kind of crack immortality or, or quote solve aging. But of course, who knows? Um, I don't presume to know the future. So I am open to being um, shown that I'm wrong. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be so, uh, there's a lot of obstacles I think we're going to have to overcome. And yes, there are species that seem hypothetically immortal, but they, but I think we need to understand that a lot of phenotypes and traits of an organism are connected. So you can't just take one trait out of some immortal species, put it in a human and expect a human to be immortal. So it's probably also dependent on all the other things. So, so there's this concept called pleiotropy. So things yeah. aren't just coding for one trait at a time. It's kind of a manifestation of multiple things. And I personally have no intention on becoming a hydra or a clam um, or taking on any <laughs> of their other traits. Not, I don't want to trade. So that you can live long. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we'll that's see. Really funny. Yeah, that's funny. But it's extremely exciting to see where we've come and the, and, and just the, the possibility of what we can look at now and some suggestion that if we, you know, think about eating, living, you know, for optimal mm -hmm. gene expression for, you know, that we may really be able to make a difference. It's, uh, I just, I, I just, for me, it just seems like it's an exciting time, um, just an exciting time to, to kind of be on the journey and to be alive. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, yeah. it is exciting that we can, we can decide and change the state of a cell. I think that was never something we thought was going to be possible, that we can take cells and just move them to a different state and even, quote, a different age in terms of the biological aging. Um, yeah, so I think it is exciting. There's a lot that we're going to discover over the next few decades. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, let's talk about some of the interventions um, that we can be doing now. So, I mean, and, and I just want to preface that by saying it's, so this is another trans, transformation I think that's happening. You know, we, we always thought our genes were our destiny. And I think this new sort of omics era that, we're, that we've landed in and, and you know, again, 
you're right here demonstrating this uh, with your research is that in fact, our genes really largely are not our destiny and that we are, uh, we're driving the gene expression car way, way, way more than we previously mm -hmm. thought. And talk to that and just, well, you already have, but you know, some of the interventions that we need to be thinking about and doing right now. Yeah, and, and just in terms of genes being our destiny, I think when the Human Genome Project came out of, um, in the early 2000s, there was this idea that, oh, we're gonna explain all the differences in someone's yeah. risk of getting cancer or heart disease or whatever. And actually what we've discovered is you can explain very, very little of the, of the differences between people based on their genetics. And some of this might be, we don't have the best models, but it even seems like things like lifespan, which I think people always thought was, you know, kind of due to your genes, only about, only genes only explain about 10, maybe if we're being, uh, liberal 20% of differences in lifespan. That might be different for people who leave, live exceptionally long, so like super centenarians. But for most of us, most of our differences in lifespan come down to these kind of variations in our, our lifestyle, our behaviors, our environment. And of course, there's a little bit of kind of stochastic chance thrown in there, but we have a lot of power to do to, to kind of change the rate of aging compared to what we probably once thought we did. So on one hand, there does appear to be some program phenomena happening because we can see it across species. Um, and there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a shared aging journey and we're going to slide down that aging slope. You use the really interesting and sort of powerful analogy of a hill. I mean, it's such a simple analogy, but it's impact. It was impactful for me. You know, this whole developmental journey is a massive energetic output. You're climbing up the hill. I mean, just think about being pregnant and, you know, the amount of calories and just yeah. full tilt nonstop energy into building this little human. And then the early, early infancy, which, you know, my, my daughter's four now and she's still just developing you know, daily sprouting new skills and understandings. It's, it's such an extraordinary thing to witness. And so that happens. They, we climb the hill and devote so much. And then as you say, aging is really the slippery slope. It's the other side of the hill. And it and, and, there, and there's a program phenomenon, like it's going to happen uh, regardless of who we are and where we are. And, um, but, but there are choices that we can make to, I don't know, maybe stop in the, in, you know, at the top of the hill or, or really slow down our walk. Uh, and it's an active, engaged process to slow that, that slope down. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we can probably, yeah, we can probably through our, you know, behaviors change kind of the, the how steep our slope is, right? So maybe there, we're going to go down the hill, I think, unless, you know, some massive, breakthrough that I can't conceive of right now um, happens, but we can change how fast we go down the hill. So maybe we have a less steep hill and we're going to go down more slowly and it'll take a lot longer for us to develop all these chronic diseases we see with aging. Um, or you could do things that are, you know, problematic and go down quite quickly, or, or some of the things are not necessarily within our control. You can have life experiences or um, as we saw with COVID, uh, things get, that can kind of push you a little further than maybe you wanted to. Um, yeah. But what, 
what we see now is actually behaviors have a huge effect, it seems, on on our aging process and our, our health span and our lifespan. So things like our diet, our exercise, sleeping patterns, stress. So nothing that we didn't already know, but I think now just there's more and more evidence showing how important these different things are. And, you know, the interesting thing that you speak about too, actually, of the many you know, cool things in your book is that a little bit of reversal can really add up. I mean, your research suggests that a little bioage reversal, I mean, you were speaking about the study, I think it was recently published with, with Walter Longo, um, you know, looking at the, yeah, yeah, go ahead, speak to that. Uh, Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I, yeah, I was just saying, yeah, the studies, um, I think it's under review right now, but yeah, um, both little, you know, quote reversals. Um, I don't, I don't know if we ever revert back to an initial state exactly, but you know, you kind of maybe go up the hill a little bit more or, or the slowing can really compound. So one could imagine mathematically, if you're only gaining, let's say 0.8 years of biological age for every one year of chronological age, that's going to compound after, you know, 10 years of time just thinking about it at a single given point in time. And so, yeah, all these little things we can do. Um, so I talk a little bit about kind of the diets that seem the most beneficial, although again, uh, it's probably going to be slightly different for everyone and the type mm-hmm. of diet that one person will benefit the most from may not be exactly what another person would benefit the most from, but uh, it seems to be, you know, whole food, plant-based diets, and with the idea of not, you know, maybe slight caloric deprivation, but not not extreme by any means, and definitely not excessive um, calories is the best. There are also kind of fasting regimens that might mimic uh, some of the caloric deprivation, or at least cause a a beneficial kind of stress response to the system um, that I talk a little bit about. Um, and then probably the biggest one I always think about is exercise. So I argue that if you could bottle the effects of exercise, it'd probably be the biggest longevity and aging pill on the market because it, it's amazing, not just in preventing disease, it can it seems to be able to reverse disease. It's yes. one of the only things for Alzheim- for people who are at risk of Alzheimer's disease that actually seem to delay the progression of that disease. Um, so yeah, I think, just any way that people can kind of have an excuse to get up and move is going to be hugely beneficial for them. Would you actually put exercise in front of diet? I, I mean, you really can't, and it's sort of a sort of a waste. Yeah, of a, yeah. But I'm just curious. I, I, it's hard to say um, because I think a lot of our data is from population data, and probably people who are exercising a lot have slightly better diet. So it's, it's hard to tease the two apart. Um, I wouldn't say that exercise can overcompensate or can compensate for a, you know, McDonald's diet or whatever it might be. Um, but I think it's often not considered maybe as much as diet, especially in aging. We've, there's been a lot of studies on diets for what seems like a cent, more than a century. Um, and only recently have people really been thinking more about exercise. Even, 
I think the other thing about exercise is there's never really a point in your lifespan when it's not beneficial. So there's always a fear that, you know, very frail people shouldn't, shouldn't do it because it, it's dangerous. But actually, uh, randomized controlled trials show that even, you know, individuals who are in nursing homes or, or have lots of functional impairments actually still benefit from, uh, from exercise, moderate exercise, you know, under supervision. You know, one of the coolest studies that that I read in the not so distant past, it, it, it was looking at exercise and epigenetic changes. And I know more and more of this, you know, these studies are coming out and they're just really cool. Like we can see beneficial changes from limited, very limited exercise. And then we can see sort of more profound changes with, you know, practiced exercisers. I, you know, you talk about sort of the, the, the changes to the methylome as we age. And one of the things that I've thought a lot about in my work is, you know, tumor suppressor genes are shut off. So these genes that keep us cancer free, you know, that, that, that take care of us and sort of surveil the body and protect us from uh, getting cancer are shut down in the aging journey, which to me just seems like a raw deal. <laughs> you know, like what the heck? It just, it, it, and it doesn't make entire sense to me. And then, you know, you talk about the transposons being turned on or these potentially oncogenes are actually turned on, making us more vulnerable. So either in cancer or in aging, we can see similar epigenetic changes and um, exercise can actually elect, turn tumor suppressor genes back on. And the study that I'm thinking of showed that the older, the older folks may actually experience this benefit more powerfully than younger folks. And maybe that's just because they have more inhibition of their tumor suppressor genes, but any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exercise probably does so much. And actually that's why I think it's something that is so powerful is, you know, it's one thing thinking about interventions that are meant to target like a single gene or a single pathway. Um, but exercise is this really dynamic thing that your your entire body is responding to this mild stress. Um, yeah. So yeah, it'll definitely get encoded probably in the epigenome because that's how cells kind of have memory for how to respond or how, again, how to change their state to be more adaptive to their environment. And exercise is kind of an environmental perturbation. Um, it, it kind of, it changes our immune system, which also is really important in um, cancer detection and, and kind of prevention in our bodies. Um, it improves our metabolic functioning. Um, yeah, it, it's the, the effects are so widespread um, that just overall, it seems to be a beneficial thing. And I, I do believe that, yeah, the, the older people probably got a bigger benefit. Um, and actually in our diet study, it's, it's a very similar thing, kind of the worst, the worst you started. And I think also the older you were when the intervention happened, the, the more you improved over the, the course of the intervention, because like you said, you have the most kind of to gain from it at that point. The older you were biologically or both biologically and chronologically, probably either, right? Yeah, it's both. Yep. Either one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then another piece of, of this study was just showing that there may be a heritable component. So if you're a preconception, you might be able to hand down some of these favorable epigenetic um, patterns from exercise to offspring, which to me is just really I don't know that yeah. we'll be handing down rock hard abs, but maybe somewhere 
<laughs> but it's just it's just really it's me and it's it's just always just very interesting to me yeah there's another example of that um actually it, it, with the dutch hunger winter where uh, this was in the wrong direction where uh, yeah. mothers who yeah had kind of malnutrition during this phase of their life actually handed down um and and offspring uh ended up being more prone to i think it was like uh metabolic disorders yeah um and and you can even experimentally show this in worms where they can do some environmental perturbation and they can see the effects of this for a few generations so it's and it's again all encoded at the epigenetic level which is pretty amazing yes yeah it's really quite extraordinary i mean it makes sense it's would you say that the, in the dutch hunger winter that was a evidence of sort of a thrifty epigenome type being passed down, mm -hmm. hanging yeah. on to every calorie kind of thing. Probably, yeah. Yep. Um, so, so a plant-forward diet, um, some caloric limitation, but not too crazy, um, exercise, there's some suggestion if we're overdoing it, and I, you know, I always think about my own history competing, I, I used to get sick after every season. So I was clearly overdoing it. You know, I would just wear myself down and, and I would inevitably get sinusitis or something like that. Um, and I don't anymore exercising a little bit more balanced. So I would, I, I would imagine there's, there's a, it's a U curve, you know, none at all yeah. versus going way crazy. Um, uh, and then sleep and stress. So talk about exercise in the U curve, if you have any thoughts there or anything you want to add to the diet? And then let's talk about some of the other lifestyle components you think are really important. Let's take a minute to hear from our sponsors. I wrote my upcoming book, Younger You, Reduce Your Bio-Age and Live Longer, Better, because our research strongly suggests that we don't have to accept the inevitability of disease and unwellness as we age. And perhaps we don't have to accept aging as we age. Take that one in. And further, we achieve this biological age reversal without expensive and risky hormones, injections, or hacks, but with a simple, smartly designed diet and lifestyle program. When we saw our study participants reverse their bioage by over three years as compared to our control group, it was clear to me, even as we move forward with more research, that you needed access to our program now. You can do this in two ways. Our 3YY digital program encompasses what we did in our study in an actionable, all-encompassing, doable structure, and my book, which covers our study, my story, the behind-the-scenes adventures, and a dive into the fascinating world of modifying genetic expression, plus loads of recipes and bioage assessments and an appendix extraordinaire. Please see youngeryouprogram.com for details on how to access both. Now let's get back to this month's episode. Yeah, so for exercise and, and actually diet as well, I think there are these U-shaped U curves where, um, you know, a mild stressor, which we call hormesis or some hormetic effect is gonna be beneficial. It's gonna make your system more robust. Um, but once the stressor is too extreme, so again, in the case of people who are doing very intensive long-term exercise, so not like a short intensive exercise, um, your, your system actually doesn't have the ability to adapt as well to that because it's pushed so far kind of out of the extreme. And it's also important to give it kind of the 
the rest and rehabilitation part after right. where, where again, these things can then get encoded and it can kind of respond to the mild stressor you just put it through. So they do show, I think people who are, you know, ultra marathon runners, it's not that you continue to get a benefit linearly with the more exercise, but it is this U shape where, you know, eventually there actually be uh, deleterious effects. And the hard thing to know is that kind of apex of where the optimal spot is, is probably different for each of us. Um, yes. Yeah. And there's, it's really hard to know where that is for, for ourselves. And, you know, it's probably also will change as a function of our aging and our, our different kind of fitness levels. Yes. Um, yeah. But, and the other, I guess the other thing with exercise is, you know, we don't really know which exercise is best. Should I do right. mostly card cardio or weight training or right. or whatever it is? Yeah. Right. Right. Yes. I, yeah, I wrote about that in my book and it was just an interesting exercise mm-hmm. pun intended to yeah. kind of go through the literature on, on all of these different types and, but you're yeah. exactly right. So there's this individualization component that's, that's going to, it, it's essential now and it's going to continue to be my conclusion at this point is we'll know as we're able to, you know, do serial measurements of mm-hmm. appropriate biological age clocks you know, plus other markers. I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you talk about in the book, some of the standard chemistries that you based your phenoage clock on, or your, so your original mm-hmm. publication before you created the phenoage, you were just looking at things on, you know, a, a, a complete blood count standard panel, all of us have kicking around somewhere in our medical folders and yep. a chem screen, really basic old school tools. I, I mean, those labs were developed, I think in the fifties. It's amazing yeah. to me how, you know, you've, you catapulted them into, you know, the next generation and, and, and demonstrated them as being still useful. So chemistry and CBC, and then an, uh, a C-reactive protein, which is, which is a little mm-hmm. bit of a newer one, but so we can, you know, we can look at some of these and, and I would just suggest to people to grab um, Morgan's book to read about these biomarkers and where you can actually access a uh, tool to plug your numbers in to see your bio age. So that would be an easy, useful tool that we can measure, that we can look at, you know, pretty often um, as we wait for uh, DNA methylation clocks to become, you know, cheap enough and available mm-hmm. enough, which, so is that logical? Absolutely. Like, yeah. yeah, actually, I would say right now for just a general health assessment, those are, uh, they're about on par with the epigenetic clocks. So in terms of looking at how will they predict outcomes, um, not the individual clinical chemistry measures, but yeah, these composites where you kind of put them all together um, and get a, a, again, you get like a biological age out of them. And there are free online calculators where people can plug them in. Um, if you have a a kind of lab test with, like you said, metabolic panel, CDC, and C-reactive protein from a recent physical. And for now, those are probably going to be more useful for people because, again, it the, the methylation still costs a ton of money. It yeah. takes a while to sequence. Um, we're mm-hmm. still early days in really knowing what we're capturing, whereas, like you said, these other measures, we have a more, we have more intuition about what they represent. So, I think they're a great thing right now. And I think in the future, the methylation is going to be more powerful, but we aren't there yet to where it's, you know, really 
we need to be doing, I don't think we need to be doing methylation over these more standard ones. We will link to one of those calculators or a couple of them, okay, folks, so if you just hop over to the show notes, um, I'll make sure that, that, that we pop them in so you can use them. Yeah, super easy, really cool. And so it's not looking at them in an isolated, it's looking at them within this calculator where you're weighting them and, and, and analyzing them in the context of an individual's chronological age, and then you're, mm-hmm. you give a bio age as, as um, outcome. I just, yep. I, I, honestly, I think it's pretty cool that these really old studies are, you know, you've given them a, a current, an update and, and they're still very useful for us. So good job there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. So, 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 and, and this is a long-winded way of saying that we need, this is how we, this is one way that we can individualize what we're doing. So people are asking me, you know, we created a, a methylation diet and lifestyle program, obviously, I, it, mm-hmm. that I think you're familiar with that we published on and everybody's asking me, well, do I stay on it forever or do I do this or, <laughs> or, or how do I exercise or do I continue? And I'm sure you get those questions all of the time. And I think yeah. at this point, you know, A, how do you feel? You know, there's, you know, we can, there's subjective mm-hmm. questionnaires we can use. B, what do your labs look like? C, if you are measuring uh, biological age, doing DNA methylation clocks from a, you know, from a good reputable lab, then, you know, what are you seeing there? And it's only those ways that we can, um, you know, speak to the benefit of a given protocol. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So uh, sleep and stress. Yep. Um, I will just say on a personal note, these are ones I struggle the most with in my life. And I think a lot of um, busy professionals can probably relate. Um, So yeah, and sleep, it seems to be, it's not just the quantity of sleep. And again, you know, how much sleep should we be getting is a little bit of a debated topic. I think they say somewhere between seven, maybe some people need eight hours of sleep, but Again, it's this U-shaped curve. Too little sleep is bad. Too much sleep is bad. Um, Although we're not exactly sure why, whether those are just indicators of other things, uh, other health problems. Yeah. Yeah. So these are the hard things to kind of sort out with these uh, observational studies. But the other thing we know is that the sleep quality, so whether you have uninterrupted sleep or versus, you know, kind of insomnia where you're waking up in the middle of the night and having a hard time going back to sleep. Uh, these seem to be um, problematic for our health. And then the other thing is stress. And usually um, what we see in stress is not necessarily, you know, people think of, oh, job stress or, you know, all these other things, but it's actually some of the most impactful things are things like socioeconomic status or, mm-hmm some of these really major chronic stressors that people are going to suffer from for, you know, perhaps their entire life, if not, you know, decades and decades of their life. Um, And to me, the most like impactful studies are the ones that just show just knowing someone's zip code that they were born into how well you can predict how long they'll live. And um, this seems to be kind of, due to differences in socioeconomic status um, and neighborhood disorders and all these other things that you can measure. But yeah, it's, it's something we have slightly less control over, um, but still important to be aware of and probably at the, the kind of policy level, something we need to do something about. 
Yes. I, and I appreciate you speaking to that. I know that you've published on it. Um, I believe on racial disparities and, and, and biological mm -hmm. aging. Um, yep. Uh, and that could potentially relate to zip code, et cetera. And, and, and just how it's baked in like um, institutionalized racism. I mean, would you say that that's a mm -hmm. biological age driver? Yeah, I mean, we, we have some studies that show where people can report, you know, discrimination and, the, and that seems to have an impact and definitely these things that are impacting different groups of people in terms of their kind of social mobility or any, any of these other things are gonna have major impacts, it seems, on uh, aging and, and as a result on health span and lifespan. And this is why we see these huge kind of um, health disparities in the United States and in also other countries around the world. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate you speaking on that and thinking about it and publishing on it um, because it's just, it's, it's important to keep a constant light on it. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to be tending to all of these and, you know, some we can do easier, uh, more readily than others, uh, as you just spoke to, uh, but all of these can add up, you know, as you stated in the beginning and really improve health span, like, and you, what James Fries said many years ago, this compression of mm -hmm. morbidity. So yeah. we can we can live well longer. Would you say that that's conclusive? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the compression of morbidity, I think, is the goal of many of the people in the aging field. You know, some people want to live forever, but I think for most of us, we want to, you know, even if we all have, you know, maybe 100, 110 years on this planet, can we have the vast majority of that be in fairly good health. And I'm again, I'm not, I, when I talk about health span, I, it's not to disclude people who are born with certain chronic diseases. So mm -hmm. it's more the accumulation of chronic diseases with aging that we're talking about. So it's not like someone has a health span of zero if they're born with something. Um, but the idea is, can you push that accumulation as close to kind of the end of life as possible and this will be beneficial for well-being. It'll be beneficial economically. Um, we see how much—I mean, how much money is spent in the last few decades of life for most people is exorbitant. And yeah, the the other interesting thing I I um, have read about in some studies is centenarians have a much fewer uh, healthcare costs in the last few right. years of their life compared to the rest of us. Um, and again, it has to do with this probably compression of morbidity. And I think we potentially have the ability to compress our morbidity. Uh, the extent to which we can do that is somewhat unknown, but I think we definitely can do it to an appreciable de degree. So as we just head to close here, I mean, just a couple, a few more questions. So why not? just suck down a Yamanaka cocktail <laughs> or a little, you know, just a little sort of uh, Yamanaka light cocktail and reverse our bio age a little bit. Why isn't this 
ready for prime time, even though we're doing it in animal studies and cell studies. And, you know, what are the issues with, you know, yeah. making us younger with something aggressive like that? Yeah, so since the, the studies on this kind of cellular programming came out, people have been very excited about this in terms of a therapeutic. Um, I would say we're still in the very basic science phase of this. This is not necessarily approaching translation. Well, we'll see, but not necessarily anytime soon. And I think, you know, there's major hurdles we need to overcome. So one is too much of this can actually promote, you know, it can push cells too far back to where they become, mm. um, they lose their identity. And actually that then when, then they actually have the potential of becoming um, what are called teratomas, which are these really weird tumors that have yeah. all the different cell types in them because they don't know what they're supposed to be anymore. Um, the same thing is, you know, you don't wanna push cells too far back because let's say you're doing this in your liver you want to have all your normal liver cells, like your hepatocytes and your Cooper cells. You don't want a, a liver full of just embryonic stem cells because that's, you're, you're not going to function the correct way. So the few things we need to figure out are one, the dosing. How do you know how far you're pushing a cell back and when to stop? Um, also, the problem is that it's probably going to be different for different cell types. So yeah. the timing of this is going to be to some degree cell type specific. Um, and then I think just the delivery system is hard. So uh, it's easy to kind of do it in a, in a dish. And then uh -huh. also in mice, we're using transgenic mice, but I don't think people want us, you know, CRISPRing in or, you know, actually changing their genome just to get Yamanaka factor expression. Uh, so how do you deliver this uh, safely and effectively in a whole organism is something that's going to be challenging, but again, potentially not impossible and exciting to kind of see where the field goes. Thoughts on some of the longevity drugs being studied, metformin, rapamycin? I mean, are these ready for prime mm -hmm. time in your opinion? Um, I think we're jumping the gun if we say that they're actually slowing the pace of aging. They might, but I think we don't have conclusive or even like you know, very strong data that they are. Uh, I, I am somewhat optimistic that they, they will um, have an impact. Uh, and for, you know, there's, there's clinical trials going on for both. So for metformin, uh, near Barsley and others are, are trying to get what's called the TAME trial up and running where they're gonna do a, a randomized controlled trial to look at the effect of metformin on delaying disease um, incidents. So it's, the, it's among people who have a chronic disease time to second disease. And, um, and then same for rapamycin, there's some small human trials, but you know, there's also really exciting trials being done in companion animals, almost as a first mm -hmm. principle that I think will be exciting. And actually now there's, there's a lot of people self-experimenting uh, with these drugs. I, I don't, but you know, we might have a, a kind of natural experiment uh, without even attempting it just because there's been a lot of excitement around them. My, my thinking, especially for rapamycin, is that the animal studies show that it works even quite late into life. So for anyone who is not really worried about the clock running out, I would say you have enough time to wait and see um, before kind of jumping on that band bandwagon. But I, I'm someone who's 
lower, I'm a low risk taker. So, you know, <laughs> to each their own. Right, right. Metformin, you know, there's concern around it. I know there's, there's an argument that it's actually beneficial to mitochondria, that it's, that it, you know, it, in its inhibition of, of, of the electron transport chain, uh, one of those proteins that it, it may have a hormetic effect on mitochondrial health. And then others mm-hmm. argue that it's actually perhaps toxic. And uh, any thoughts on that? I mean, for me, my biggest concern with my, with uh, metformin is actually there's there's a few studies now that say it might actually blunt the benefits of exercise. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, right. that is, you know, the the because unless it can completely replace the benefits of exercise. Um, I would never want to kind of lose those benefits, especially if you're going to take yeah. the time and energy to go out and exercise. I mean, right. exercise has other benefits for endorphins and stuff, but um, that that's something I think really needs to be followed up because I would imagine most of the old clinical trials, because metformin is a diabetes medication, is not done in highly active, right. very healthy individuals. So I think, you know, figuring out the effect on, on those types of people is going to be important. So that's my biggest concern with it right now. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I know I've heard people talk about toggling it, you know, between (laughs) exercise, but what would be the optimal toggle, you know? Exactly. We have no idea how long, you know, first, we don't even know with exercise, what that time is that your body is actually still getting this benefit. And same thing with metformin, the timing of it, I think is going to be hard to sort out. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of questions, a lot of questions. So listen, I know you're hopping over to Altos Labs, which rumor has is, is Jeff Bezos baby, you know, and he wants to crack the, the aging code over there. Um, And so I want to ask you a little bit about that. Any, any uh, excitement to share about what you're going to be focusing on. And I know that brings you back from here, cold Connecticut to uh, warm California. I'm kind of envious of you in that. And then, you know, just speaking to the future and what you're working on and excited about. Yeah. So, um, it's actually, so the company is not technically Jeff Bezos company. I think there's a rumor he's an investor and, and this is not even something that's been confirmed to people on the inside. (laughs) Um, but it was, it was kind of founded, uh, one of the main founders is Rick Klausner, who is serving as the chief science officer, I think is his official role, who is, he was um, a former, he was a former director of National Cancer Institute, and then really instrumental in uh, Grail and Illumina. And this is kind of his new big project, which I was not looking to move from Yale. I was very happy. My lab was very well funded. I have lots of students and postdocs and but then kind of got this opportunity and it seemed like a once in a lifetime thing. Um, So I will basically be continuing doing the same types of projects I would have done in Yale, although now probably expanded because I have an entire new set of amazing colleagues that were also recruited and we're gonna try and do a lot of kind of really big team science projects. And I think the other main difference which made me excited to move to Altos is um, in academia, it's really hard to do kind of high risk, high reward Mm. uh, research because of just the way things are funded. You have to really prove out that what you're going to do is going to work. So you can't take risks and try, you you kind of have to take these incremental steps. But 
the ability to just kind of try what might be sound like a crazy thing and just see if it works, I think is really exciting. Because if we look back on big breakthroughs, they're, for the most part, they come out of things that are unexpected and just from trying tons of different things and following the science. And so um, that was the other thing that just made me really excited. And uh, there is kind of rumor that Altos is focused solely on this reprogramming, but I think, you know, it's, it's really just the basic science of understanding what makes a healthy cell. And if we have any power to kind of make what are, what have become unhealthy cells healthy again. So, right. yeah, we'll see. Very exciting stuff. Well, listen, um, Dr. Levine, it was fabulous to have you on New Frontiers. I, I could continue to pick your brain, but I know you've got a lot going on with your book launch here. Um, so thanks for, thanks for joining me today and, and having this really terrific conversation. Absolutely. This is fun. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. All right. Good luck on your launch. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine where our sponsors help bring the very best minds in functional medicine, and today is no exception. Not everyone can be a sponsor on my platform, and I so appreciate the good work, the relentless research, and the generous support from my friends at Biotics, TA Sciences, and Integrative Therapeutics. These are brands I know and trust in my own clinic and can confidently recommend them to you. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com, tasciences.com, and integrativepro.com, and please tell them you learned about them on New Frontiers. If it's not too much to ask, I would appreciate a thumbs up and a kind review wherever you're listening to New Frontiers. Thanks.